0: up the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, this may sound bad, but I won't be that sad finishing up the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, I'm ready to get on with some more action, and we'll get into Joshua uh, after that. And uh, certainly Joshua follows the storyline, um, but Deuteronomy plays a very important role in even getting to the book of Joshua. Because as we have said, Deuteronomy is preparing this new generation to enter into the promised land. And not just preparing them to enter into the promised land, preparing them for their life in the promised land. That their life and their lives as individuals and as a community at whole would continue to glorify God. They would continue to be faithful to the Lord. They would continue to be faithful to the covenant They would continue to be separate from the other nations surrounding them so they would not be influenced by the pagan gods and goddesses and worship of the surrounding nations when they get into the promised land. So that's why Deuteronomy is so important. It is Moses preparing the people for what is ahead of them, life in the promised land. Last week we looked... um, and how Moses expounds upon the law, as he expounds upon really the Ten Commandments, as the Ten Commandments are the foundation of the law. And out of these Ten Commandments spring all of these other laws, which we can uh, define as applications to the Ten Commandments. And altogether, there are over 600 laws found in the Pentateuch. And um, We're going to finish the second half of those. We saw five of those first commandments last week expounded upon. This week we'll see the last five expounded upon in chapters 19 through 26. So we're going to begin today in Deuteronomy chapter 19 and going through chapter 26. Uh, As we noted uh, last week, and we just noted, chapters 12 through 26, follow the order of the Ten Commandments. Uh, The longest of these sections is devoted to explaining and applying the sixth commandment, Thou shalt not murder. Uh, Murder is one of those sins that pollutes the land. And it is said to defile the land if it is not treated and brought to justice properly. It would make it impossible for Israel to remain in the land if they continue to defile the land. So as we come into chapter 19, the first law that we find here deals with what we looked at in uh, our previous book is what we call the cities of refuge. Now, there was intentional murder, and then there was unintentional murder. Well, for intentional murder, premeditated murder, there was absolute justice. For unintentional murder, manslaughter, uh, the person who committed this unintentional crime deserved a fair hearing. Now, in those days, you didn't have a police force in every one of the cities. uh, And usually what happened is it was up to the elders and to those in the community to really have a neighborhood watch program to watch out for one another there was somebody that did a crime they would find the person that did a crime and bring them to justice well if somebody murdered somebody unintentionally uh, I think it used the example here of uh, uh, what was the example that it it may used here Uh, when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut a tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes the neighbor so that he dies. So you're cutting, you're, you're cutting down a tree, you, know, you, sl- you sling the axe back, the axe head flies off, hits somebody, and kills them. Well, in a justice form of society, then the person who was the, related to that who was murdered could go and extract justice upon the one who unintentionally murdered his family member. Instead of doing that, this person could go to a city of refuge. And the city of refuge here is outlined in Numbers 35, uh, but here as well to protect those until they could come to a proper hearing. Uh, So if someone was killed, it was the duty of his brother or nearest male relative to catch and execute uh, the killer. So Deuteronomy's concern is that the manslayer who accidentally kills someone should have had a chance to escape execution. Uh, So you can see how, you know, the law of God, even though, you know, we on this side, you know, apart from the law, we kind of come down hard upon the law. There are, as we've mentioned before, there are ways that that the law here found in the first five books of the Bible does make a distinction um, between their law and the laws of those surrounding neighbors. It's much more geared toward justice, it's much more geared to the poor, even though there would be some things we would look at and say, you know, we probably wouldn't do that in our society today. We have to remember this is an ancient book, it's an ancient context, uh, and it's set in that historical setting. Uh, so that's the first thing in chapter 19 concerning uh, these cities of refuge. In chapter 20, And we're not going to spend a lot of time going through all of these. We're just going to kind of give an overview. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, uh, it's perhaps surprising to find laws on war under this section. So following the the laws on murder, we have laws on war. Uh, Now, obviously, when you have war, you're going to have loss of life. But Deuteronomy's concern is to limit the loss of life in the activity of war. So it begins by listing all the men of Israel who are exempt from Call up, so even when they enter the land, yes, it was important to protect the nation. It was important to fight, but also the livelihood of people was important. Their quality of life in the land. So in chapter twenty, uh, let's say it gives some exemptions of those who were, um, who could stay out of war for the moment. In Deuteronomy chapter twenty, verse number five, it said, that if there's any man who has built a new house. And has not dedicated it, let him go back to his house, lest he die in battle and another dedicate it. If there's a man who's planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed his fruit, let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another enjoy his fruit. If there is a man who has betrothed a wife and has not taken her, let him go back to his house, lest he die in battle and another man take his wife. As the officer spoke further, he said, Is there any man who is fearful or faint hearted? Let him go back to his house lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. So clearly Deuteronomy is showing how it values civilian pursuits over military glory because part of the land, it was to enjoy the land. That's why God wanted to bring Israel into this land of promise so they could enjoy it. So they would have land and houses and vineyards and and fruit and they could have wives and husbands and families and children and they could follow the Lord and they could have relationship and they could could prosper in the land. So it wasn't all hardship, uh, even though there was duty to defend the land, there was also the land was given to enjoy, a land that God gave them flowing with milk and honey. I think that's something we realize about not a promised land that is promised to us Christians, but a promised life that is promised to us Christians. You know, Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. That we enjoy the blessings that God has given us. And we've made life such a pursuit and that we've made life full of to-do lists and we've made life full of you know reaching this destination and that destination and this destination even with our relationship you know with God again we're, we, we, we could be focused on everything we're not doing right or that you know the more that we should do for God and yes those things are important but I believe that God saved us so that we could enjoy him and his goodness that we could have a relationship with Him, that we could talk with Him and, and pray with Him and, and run to Him when we're having issues and do what we did this morning and just pray and let our hearts out before God and, and everything that He has blessed us with. In Hebrews chapter 4, it talks about how uh, that Joshua, when he led them into the promised land, didn't lead them into the true rest of God that the true rest of God is found in Jesus. So you have to remember, to us as Christians, our promise is not a promised land, a promised piece of real estate. It's a promised life. It's an abundant life. It's a life that is lived in communion and union with God. And it's meant to enjoy all the good and perfect gifts that come down from the Father. So uh, civilian pursuits over military glory here in Deuteronomy chapter 20. Um, it's a fundamental rule about the exercise of war is that besieged cities were offered surrender terms. So if, if Israel was to go into a city, uh, first they were supposed to offer them terms of surrender to prevent loss of life. Uh, and if that didn't happen, and again, this is, not, this is familiar when you read other literature from this. Time point from this time frame. When you read other ancient treaties and other ancient covenants that they had, this is how life was. This is how nations interacted. Uh, But again, the first thing that God says here is that offer the city surrender terms that for those that are outside of the land. For there was no need to shed blood that was not needed to be shed in war. So chapters 19 and 20 deal with with murder, manslaying, and and then war. As you go down to chapter 21, it contains further laws about dealing with the pollution caused by death, uh, 21, 1 through 9, as well as laws about female captives, laws, uh, rights about the firstborn children, uh, punishment for rebellious sons, laws concerning the death penalty, uh, so you kind of have, and this happens a lot in these chapters, there's just like this shotgun list of, of laws that we find here. Um, some are just interesting to read, uh, just to get a, a, a viewpoint into how, what life was like thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. Um, you know, you have, if you notice, just pointing out a couple of interesting tidbits. Uh, maybe they're interesting. In chapter 21, um, verse 15, you have the rights of the firstborn. Um, chapter 21 verse 15 starts out this way if a man has two wives okay so let when we talk it, it's funny you know when i hear people talk about biblical marriage uh, and i'm like biblical marriage could get uh, real dicey in a hurry uh you know we understand what it means a lot but you know here in the law there's provision for a man that has more than one wife if a man has two wives if he loves one and he doesn't love the other and the one that he doesn't love Gave him a firstborn son. The law says don't show favoritism to the son of the wife that you love just because you don't love your other wife. He says so don't skip the firstborn son to give another son you prefer. Don't give preferential treatment to another son. Give the true firstborn son a double portion of the inheritance. You know, that would sound really foreign to us today. We're like, wow, what do you know? Can't even imagine, uh, but again, this is the world they are living in. So it gives you a snapshot into civilization and culture and life thousands and thousands of years ago. Uh, not to mention verse 18 in chapter 21. Uh, you know, if you have a stubborn and rebellious son and he won't listen to you, well, there's a reason, there's a remedy for that. Uh, you can bring him to the elders, put him out in the street and stone him to death. Uh, that's, that's, what the, that's what the law says. Uh, why does the law say that? Uh, because... It says it here in verse number 21, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Uh, They were not to defile the land of Israel. Uh, They were to hear and fear. So a rebellious son is breaking the commandment and he suffers the penalty of breaking the law. Just like we suffer the penalty if we break the law, in our country, well, they broke the law in their country, they suffered the penalty. In chapter 21, verse 22, I do want to make a New Testament application to this. Deuteronomy 21:22, "If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God." You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, this verse happens to show up in the New Testament, and it shows up speaking about Jesus. Uh, So when you read in the book of Galatians, and I've got the the note here, compare with Galatians 3.13. When you read Galatians 3.13, it says this. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, and then he quotes Deuteronomy, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus was cursed for us so that in Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So, you know, when you talk about breaking the law and coming under the curse of the law... And we'll, you know, if you like talking about curses, we'll talk a lot about curses next week when we get to Deuteronomy 28. We'll talk about the blessing and the cursings of the law. If you kept the law, you were blessed. If you broke the law, then you were cursed. Well, here's the good thing. Jesus kept the law perfectly. And he kept it perfectly to fulfill it and to satisfy it. And he did it for us. He did it for all those in Israel who were under the law. They couldn't keep it. Jesus kept it for them. Not only did Jesus keep the law for them, He was also cursed for them breaking the law, the transgression of the law. So Jesus became cursed and took upon Him the curse of the law, being made a curse and died under that curse so that we could receive not the curse of the law, but the blessings of the law or the blessings of Christ, the blessing of God. Uh, so there's no cursed, there's no cursing under the new covenant because Christ was cursed for us. He took upon him the curse of the law for it's written "Curses everyone that hangs upon a tree. And Paul relates that to Jesus dying on the cross. So, what what a powerful view you have here of the blessings and the curses. So that's why when we come to the New Testament, you know, we don't go back into Deuteronomy and apply blessings and and curses. We look at it through the lens of Jesus Christ. That God's not out to curse us because Jesus took the curse. God is out to bless us through Jesus by redeeming us and by giving us life and by pouring upon us and bringing us into this life of rest and abundance in Jesus. So Jesus took the curse uh, for all those who were cursed under the law. In chapter 22, uh, we have various laws. Um, and again, we have a shotgun list of laws here in chapter 22. Um, you know, if your neighbor or your brother has a lost animal, uh, don't ignore his lost animal. You know, help him find the animal. If he has lost garments, return it to him. If you see his lost garment, don't, don't, ignore, don't ignore a neighbor's need is what really that's saying. Uh, same thing, if this animal falls down, uh, don't ignore his need. Go and help your neighbor. Go and help your brother. That's how they were supposed to live in community in the land. Um, uh, verse number 5 of 22, uh, it warns against women not wearing men's garments, which again directly ties back to the culture of the surrounding um, pagan nations. Um, Ishtar was a goddess who would confound and confuse um, other nations that they were fighting against because you know, she would dress up as a man and, you, and they would have cult practices that followed that. So most interwoven in all of this are the pagan practices of those other nations because, again, Israel was not supposed to be like those other nations. Um, even, even down to 22, 6, and 7, protecting a mother bird in its nest. If you take the young, you leave the mother caring for, you know, protecting the animals in their nest. Uh, making a parapet wall up on your roof. So if somebody's up on your roof, they won't fall off your roof. So you put a wall up there on your roof uh, to protect life um, because death brings uh, pollution to the land. So you do everything you can to protect life. Um, then you have the law against mixing two kinds of seeds. You don't sow two different kinds of seeds in your field. You don't plow with two different kinds of animals in your field. You don't wear mixed fabric, um, you know, and that, that, those are some of the laws people like to point out, you know, well, you're wearing mixed fabric, you're breaking the law. Uh, you know, for the reason it mentions those is, again, God getting a spiritual point across. I don't want you mixing with these other nations and bringing their influences, which will cause death and hardship and, and sin. I, I don't want you mixing with them. So that's even reflected in their law, not mixing in with the pagan nations around them. Um, the next section in chapter 22, 13 through 30, uh, deals with laws concerning sexual relations. Uh, the misuse of sexual relations is seen as highly polluting the land because again, those were absolute marks of the pagan nations, not just in their society and culture, but in their religions as well. Um, uh, and God warns his people to be separate from that, um, This section should be viewed as an extended exposition and application of the seventh commandment, uh, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, Some of these laws include um, if a man marries a wife uh, and and she is a virgin and he despises her after they get married and he falsely accuses her of pretending to be a virgin when she's not, uh, then the processes and outcomes uh, for determining if he is lying is laid out there in those incidents. Um, The punishments are listed for a man uh, laying with another man's wife for consensual adultery with a married woman. uh, That's punishments are listed for that. A man forcing himself on a woman married or unmarried. Those are listed there. Incest with his father's wife. Those things are listed there as well. So you have, again, these shotgun list of laws concerning sexual relations. Um. When you get into chapter twenty-three, when you get into chapter twenty-three. Uh, you have more various laws. Um, the first verse of chapter twenty-three, or the first verses of chapter twenty-three, down to about chapter eight, verse number eight, deals with those who may not enter the assembly of the Lord. These are people who could not fully participate in the religious life of Israel. There were certain people who were not allowed to participate in the full religious community and life of Israel. The first one includes men who had been emasculated. Uh, we, a term we would use to refer to that is somebody who is a eunuch um, through various reasons, whatever that may be. It could be punishment for a sexual crime. It could be a captive taken from another nation who was emasculated as a child. Uh, There are many, many reasons in the ancient Near East why this would happen. And this is in here in 23.1. So these men include those who have been emasculated that we refer to as a eunuch. So eunuchs could not enter the assembly of the Lord. And I've made a note here, making another New Testament observation, that an interesting note about eunuchs not being able to enter the assembly of the Lord under the Old Covenant. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, we find an interesting story. Now, if you remember in the book of Acts, you have the gospel going to Israel for the very first time. They're moving from law to grace. They're moving from old covenant to new covenant. Jesus is being preached. Forgiveness is being preached. Is being preached to all throughout Israel. And we have a story here in Acts chapter 8 of Philip who encounters an Ethiopian eunuch. And this Ethiopian eunuch is interested in what Philip is reading. So Philip begins to preach Jesus to this eunuch, who under the old covenant would not be able to enter the assembly of the Lord. But in Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch, he comes to faith in Christ. And then he asks Philip this question, what prevents me from From being baptized? What prevents me? Now, under the law, you could say, This is what prevents you, eunuch, because you're a eunuch. That prevents you from entering the assembly of the Lord. So he asked Philip, What prevents me from being baptized? And the answer to the Ethiopian eunuch is nothing. Nothing prevents you from entering into Christ. So the eunuch is baptized by Philip when they come across some water. And he enters into Christ. He enters into the kingdom of God. He enters into the body of Christ. So showing us that even those who the law disqualified under the old covenant can be qualified through their faith in Christ under the new covenant. So I just, I love how just these little things are, are picked up and, and the differences and how we when we come to Jesus and how we view the law through Jesus. Uh, there were others that were excluded in the book of Deuteronomy for uh, those who were born of forbidden unions. Uh, the Ammonites and the Moabites, they couldn't enter. However, third-generation Edomites, uh, third uh, Edomites could enter the land. Just um, third-generation Edomites could enter the land. There are various laws on uncleanness, laws concerning protecting slaves, laws forbidding uh, giving your son or daughter over to cult prostitution, laws that apply to the Eighth Commandment, uh, you shall not steal, uh, come all in this range. So this covers uh, a lot of different issues here. When you get down to uh, stealing, uh, you shall not steal. This covers uh, taking interest uh, is banned because it makes the plight of the debtor even worse. They were not to extract interest upon their brothers and sisters. Um, property that had been pledged to God in a vow must be given to God. You may not take back your pledge or your vow to God if you pledge to give a piece of land over uh, to the Lord. Uh, that's honesty. That's not stealing from the Lord. Now, all that is in chapter 23. In chapter 24, it begins with verses 1 through 4, uh, which gives an incident uh, forbidding a husband uh, who despises his wife, writes her a bill of divorce, puts her away. She remarries um, either through death or through another divorce. It forbids that husband from remarrying his former wife after she had already been remarried. Um, Again, that's another one of those ancient Near East culture type things. And then in chapter 24, you have another long shotgun list of laws. Uh, Newly married men may not go out with the army. Uh, but they could be home one year so that they could enjoy their wife and their home and the new family that they have. Uh, Not taking a millstone, which a millstone was used to grind and prepare food. Um, You don't take somebody's millstone in a pledge because if you do, you hinder their ability to make food and prepare food for their family. Uh, So you don't uh, take a a millstone in a pledge. you don't steal a uh, Hebrew brother or sister and use him as a slave or sell him. Um, you follow Levitical laws for leprosy. Uh, you c- do not go into a person's house to retrieve a loan. If somebody owes you something, you wait outside, and he goes in and he brings you back what he owes you. Um, you do not oppress, and, and uh, the last, some of the last of these deal with uh, the poor. You do not oppress a servant who is poor. Uh, Fathers are not to be put to death because of their children, or vice versa. Children are not to be put to death because of their parents. Each person shall bear his own sin. So if somebody commits a sin, a capital punishment, uh, the father doesn't suffer that for the son. The son doesn't suffer for the father. Everybody is accountable for their own sin. Uh, Do not do do unjustly to a foreigner. Uh, Again, this is a big thing in the land. If you have those in Israel who are foreigners, uh, you treat them well. You do not do unjustly to them. You do not uh, pervert justice and treat them harshly or unfairly. And this goes back to remembering, hey, Israel, at one time you were slaves in the land of Egypt, and God was kind to you, and God blessed you and delivered you. So now that you have your own land, don't treat slaves differently than how you wanted to be, or don't treat foreigners the way you uh, differently than the way you wanted to be treated. Uh, then when you reap a harvest, when you gather olives, when you gather grapes, uh, if there's anything left behind, you don't go back through your field again and, and get and get it. You leave that there for the poor and the fatherless and the widows and the orphans. So if you plow a field and you're like, hey, I missed a row, you don't go back and, and get that row. You leave that there for those who are poor that can glean from your Land, So it's little things like that that, you know, make even the law here in Deuteronomy, uh, which some people would look at as harsh, definitely outdated in a lot of areas. It's not the culture we live in today. But compared to the other nations around, it was more compassionate. It was more fair. It looked out for the poor uh, more than than others did, um, which makes it above what was going on in the world at that time. Uh, and then to finish up this section um, in 25 and 26, I didn't want to get into a lot of details today, so we're going to just finish up 25 and 26. Um, not coveting roughly covers the contents of the last section. The prohibition on coveting wives uh, lies behind. There are rules on uh, lever right marriage. Uh, not coveting your neighbor's wife is behind that. Uh, Coveting property can lead to theft, so you don't covet your neighbor's property. And so, too, the possession of false weights and measures leads to cheating the customer. You don't cheat the customer. One of the best antidotes to coveting is giving, and that's how it ends here in chapter 26. So, the antidote to coveting somebody's stuff is to be generous and to give, not wanting what you don't have, but thanking God for what you do have, and being generous with what you do have. So one of the best antidotes to, covering, to coveting is giving. So the exposition of the laws concludes with a reminder of the Israelites' duty of giving to God and giving to the poor. Those are you know, the two main issues of giving. You give to the God you give to God, which includes um, you know, the, the the tabernacle and eventually the house of the Lord and then the Levites, and then you give to the poor. The first fruits of all crops had to be offered to God in the sanctuary, and 26:1 through 11 prescribes what what happens on that occasion. The worshipers' prayer recalls God's rescue of the people from Egyptian slavery and his gift to them of the land. It is God's generosity that makes this annual gift of the first fruits possible. Every third year a tithe of all agricultural product had to be given to the needy in Israel, such as the Levites, the widows and orphans. A final exhortation to keep the law and a reminder of Israel's unique status as the chosen people rounds off this part of the sermon. So going through chapters 12 through 26 is what we have looked at last week and this week is the, the application of the Ten Commandments. When they get into the land, how do you live out these ideals? Because the Ten Commandments were the ideals. How do you live out those ideals? And what you see in 12 through 26 tells Israel how they were to live out these ideals. And the underlying themes of all of these was, number one, purity. To keep yourselves pure and to keep the land pure. Because both the people and the land were both dedicated to God. So something that was dedicated to, to God needed to be kept pure. Um, secondly, it was faithfulness. So Israel shows their love to God by being faithful to Him. We talked about that a few weeks ago in Deuteronomy. That God loved Israel. He brought them out of slavery. So they are to love the Lord their God with all their heart, their soul, and their strength. And how do they do that? Remember, we said love in Deuteronomy equals faithfulness. Love equals loyalty. Love here isn't a feeling of love. Love here is an action of love. Loyalty. If you love God, you will be loyal to Him and Him alone. So purity, loyalty is important. Uh, Israel acting as God's chosen people is important. God says, I've called you out from all the other nations in the world. I've called you out to be my special people, to bless you and that you would be a light to the other nations. And he's saying you can't be a light to the other nations if you do everything all the other nations do. So I want you to be different. I've called you out. I've sanctified you. I've set you apart so that you will know that you are my chosen people. So you don't mix with the other nations. You don't let them influence you by going after their gods or by worshiping me in the same way you worship or they worship their pagan gods. You don't do their occult practices. You don't treat people the way you treat them. You don't steal and murder and kill the way that the other nations steal and murder and kill. So those three things undergird all of these chapters, chapters 12 through 26 in Deuteronomy. The fact that they were to be loyal, the fact that they were supposed to be God's chosen people, uh, the fact that they were supposed to worship Him and Him alone, the fact that they were supposed to be pure uh, all those three things undergird everything that's going on here in Deuteronomy, and because here is the key. Here's the key. We have it down here. All these laws, to you know, especially to us, uh, and I'm sure to them too. All these laws can seem burdensome. They seem burdensome to us because by the time you get to Jesus, these laws had been added with a bunch of other laws and a bunch of traditions and a bunch of man-made rules and is lumped together as a burden upon the people that unless you keep all these things perfectly, then you can't be righteous. You can't be safe. So the law was not a, not a means to righteousness per se. It was, it was how these called-up people of God were supposed to act in the land. So while the laws can seem burdensome, Taken one by one, as we read here today, when you read all through every one of these laws, it's just like an unending list of laws to read. But the reason that these laws are there is the reason purity is stress. The reason they're stressed to be loyal. The reason it's stressed for them to be chosen is because purity equals God's. Presence. If they wanted God's presence, they needed to be pure. If they wanted God's presence, they wanted God's blessing, if they wanted God's favor, they wanted to live long in the land, if they didn't want to, to die or suffer punishments by breaking the law, they remained pure. So Israel's purity equals God's presence in the land. Purity, Honesty, benevolence, generosity, all those is what Deuteronomy teaches, brings God's favor. Now, how does that apply to us? Again, bringing this over to the new covenant, how does this apply to us? Does our purity equal God's presence? Do we have to be pure in order for God to dwell in us? Do we have to be pure in order to experience salvation? Do we have to be Pure in order to, uh, you know, walk in God's favor. Here's my thing yes, we have to be pure, but purity isn't found in our works and in our flesh. We are made pure by the shed blood of Jesus Christ and He makes us pure, and He washes our sin away, and He gives us a new heart, and He gives us a new life, and He puts His Spirit with us, and He says, you are clean by the Word that I have spoken to you. So do we have to be pure to get God's presence? Yes, but how do we get pure? By receiving what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And when we receive, when we admit, hey, God, in myself, I am not pure. There is no purity. In fact, the, you know, the, Isaiah would go on to say, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags to God. We can't be pure in and of ourselves. Israel couldn't be pure. That's why they ended up being kicked out of the land. So the answer to the purity is not found in our own self-efforts. It's found in submitting to Jesus Christ. And letting Him wash our lives by His blood, by the Word of God, and by the Spirit of God. And He says, you are clean. He presents us to God as a pure bride without spot and without wrinkle. It's what you can find in the the Song of Solomon. There is no spot in you. There is no blemish in you. Why? Because we've been made pure by Jesus Christ. So... I'll, i I got to bring that in there. i got to bring the new covenant in when we're reading here in Deuteronomy. So this sets us up. We are almost finished with, with Deuteronomy. Um, you know, I, I, Trust me, I've I read tediously through all of these, <laughs> these laws this week, so I wanted to give you just an overview of what it is. But most importantly, I want to point you to Jesus at the end of all of it. So in chapters 12 through 26 is the exposition of the law. When we get into chapters 27 and 28, we talk about those blessings and curses of the law. So beginning with chapter 27, um, going through Deuteronomy uh, you know, 33, what we find here is in 34, this is Moses wrapping up his speech. This is Moses wrapping up um, what he's telling Israel before he dies. So we're going to look at the blessing and cursing. We're going to look at at Moses' last scenes next week. And hopefully next week we'll finish up this book of Deuteronomy. So again, when you're reading Deuteronomy, because we're we're making our way through the Old Testament and we're getting ready to finish up these first five books um, of the Bible. um, So remember, keep one eye on what's going on in the text. Keep the other eye on Jesus and what Jesus has done for you.